Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. We lost some great people in 2020. Let's say one out of every 500 Americans. Gosh, those numbers much greater in communities of color. Um, and that was an interview done after Gail Sayers, one of the most electric uh, players in the history of the NFL, had passed away on September 23rd, 2020. And it just struck me that 50 years later, what they were remembering wasn't simply one of the greatest athletes of all time, but a friendship that literally changed some of the landscape of our country. I don't know about you, I can't even hear that music without starting to cry. If you're my age, you get that, because that movie came out, yeah, on November 30th, 1971. Brian Piccolo had passed away in 1970. The movie came out, it was the largest made-for-TV movie viewing in the history up to that point um, about their story. These, these two men's story, one black, one white, at a time where apartheid was just starting to lose its grip in our country. And George Hallis, being the visionary he was, had these two men, for the first time, roomed together and lived together. And it was extremely controversial. They got death threat after death threat. But this bond was created that was so incredible that the powers of darkness had to flee. And uh, I remember that movie. I remember I was, I was only nine years old. You can do the math. Um, but it was the first time I ever saw my father cry. And as, as she said, it was like, uh, it was the first time I think men had the permission to cry. Um, ESPN said 50 years later, it left all of us blubbering in its wake. And it reminds us to power something that I think in contemporary society we have lost or diminished. And it's the power of friendship. What I want to talk today about is spiritual friendship. When Pastor Terry kicked us off last week and I was over at South Euclid and we had so much fun for two days being the reconciled community on the lawn there, I thought it was a powerful thing to spend September 11th listening to words of reconciliation from Christian leaders, from Muslim leaders, from Jewish leaders all over. There was something powerful in just being together and it creates something that's called friendship. And so I want to talk today about how friendship, spiritual friendship, something we've kind of trivialized, something that that movie really was the last piece of great art about in many ways, something that is, can be so impactful that it can bring about a ministry and a renaissance of reconciliation. I just want to read a few words from Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. This was a church that Paul was very, very close to. They were very intimate. They had traveled together. They had become this amazing community. And Paul is writing here about what I think is real spiritual friendship. I'm going to try to dig down in it with you today. Here's what he writes. Serve one another humbly in love. For the entire 
law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, hello, anybody there? Uh, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Is that a prophetic sentence for 21st century America and our world? Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, and actually a better translation there uh, is dear friends. That's what Paul literally says there. Dear friends, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens. You've probably heard that, bear each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, hello, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Is that the end? Okay, I've got to the end. I, I had sent three slides earlier. Um, so Paul is in here digging with something that we've kind of ignored. It's friendship. See, the ancient society and the ancient world in which Jesus lived, in which the early church was born, had such a powerful um, understanding of friendship. In fact, there were, there were three words for interpersonal love in the Greek language. There was the word agape that was supernatural love, the love of God. That's the fourth word. But the three words for interpersonal love, one was the word storge, and that was familial love. That was a love you shared, father, mother, brother, sister, son, daughter, aunt, uncle, etc. Storge love was familial love, okay? Eros was where we get the word erotic. It was romantic love. But the third interpersonal love was the word philios. And that was friendship. It's where we get Philadelphia, brotherly love. But it wasn't, brother, Storge was nuclear family love. Philia was friendship. And the ancients held the word philia held above the others because they felt that family love and romantic love were something that kind of come upon you. There's something that happened to you. In a few weeks, we're going to be in a series entitled, There's No Place Like Home. And I'm going to preach on week two, so that's four weeks from today. You ever heard, uh, you, don't, you choose your friends, but you don't choose your family, right? That's storge. You don't choose it. You're born into it. And even Eros, when we, you know, erotic love, we talk about what? Falling in love. So it's something that kind of comes upon you. But philia love, friendship, is the only kind of love that, that we work at. It's something we have to be intentional about. And I wrote this in my notes. Friendship doesn't happen unless you work on it, and it only happens to the degree you work at it. And that's why the ancients held it in such high regard. Because it's something that we, we, we work on, that we build up. And, and the truth is, in the body of Christ, that we're to be friends with the world, and we're to be friends with one another. Now, that'll happen to different degrees. I understand that. But they had this powerful understanding of friendship. 
And in our whole renaissance of reconciliation, our 10-year vision, you know, which we've talked a lot about, being better together, right? It's a spirit of reconciliation. And Dr. King, Pastor Terry found a quote from him, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., that we've been using as kind of the little subtitle for our work on reconciliation. And And this is what Dr. King said. He said, but the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community, which was Dr. King's language for the kingdom of God. On earth, though as it is in heaven. And the end is the aim, right? And if we keep these our aims, it is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. I thought that was such a powerful statement. Dr. King didn't say, it'll transform opposers into non-opposers, right? See, everything in our world right now is so binary. Do you understand what binary is? It's this or that. It's, not, it's no nuance. Not that there can be truth in, in two things at the same time. No. Uh, one scholar says, if today's society is not completely us versus them, it's at least us versus not us. See? But Dr. King didn't say, we'll have a spirit of tolerance. Opposers will be non-opposed. They'll tolerate each other. Listen, I don't, want, I don't need you to tolerate me. I've been uniquely designed and created by the author of the universe, and so have you. To be friends with one another is not to tolerate each other. Good God. It's to honor the God that we see in one another. And Dr. King said, when we practice this aspect, we're not just not opposition. We're friends. And it reminds us of what I want to call today the importance. The importance of friendship. We really need this. That's why the ancients put up on a pedestal. That's why Cicero wrote a whole book about it. Like they understood something. Maybe we don't understand in modern society. Our movies are more Romeo and Juliet and West Side Story and those kind of things. We're more in the lover thing than we are the friend thing. But the friendship can, can create things in a, in, a, in a new reality and community that we really need. Let me give some contemporary examples of this. Our deep need for friendship and community, and then a couple biblical references. First, look at the greatest recovery group that has dealt with addiction in, in modern history. It's what? The 12-step movement. AA, right? Now, some people don't know this, but actually the, the founders of this particular understanding of how to deal with recovery were Christian leaders. And what they did was they looked at the New Testament and said, what does everything the New Testament say about building community and breaking down walls of addiction? And that's how the 12-step programs were created. I had a mentor long ago who used to call 12-steppers. He said the 12-step movement is the gospel in drag. I don't know if that's politically correct anymore, but he said it, and he was from Texas, and it was in 1985. So take that for what it's worth. But it is. It's the gospel in, in clothing that if If you aren't necessarily a Christian, you can still participate and understand. And through community, through sharing common hurts, through pouring into one another and doing everything the New Testament talks about with all the one another's. I preached on that years ago. I gave you a little sheet to put on your refrigerator if you were here of all the one another's it talks about. What? To love one another, forgive one another, confess our sins to one another, encourage one another, meet together with one another, weep with one another, laugh with one another, rejoice with one another. All the Bible says is many, many times to do the one another's that they found out in that one anothering. 
There was healing. There was community building. Here's what recently an article from the AMA, the American Medical Association, said about the 12-step movement. It said this, despite all we've learned over the past few decades about psychology, neurology, and human behavior, no contemporary medicine has yet to devise anything that works better than friendship. Deep, deep spiritual friendship. They did a study in 2009, as we know we had um, young men and women that were returning from military theaters in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the rise of PTSD was, was just haunting these young adults. And they did a study in 2009, and they found out that these young adults who had gone through group therapy facing this together, 88.3% of them showed no symptoms of PTSD when they were done. Whereas only 31% were non-symptomatic after doing simply one-on-one professional you know, treatment. There's power in this, friends, and we need it. In Zimbabwe, um, they were having rises in mental illness, anxiety, depression, just like the rest of the world. And one doctor came up with an idea for friendship benches. They placed friendship benches all over the medical campuses, all over Zimbabwe, because they knew some people were reticent to talk about things like depression or mental illness, to go into a clinical place. But these friendship benches were set up that people know they could go sit on a bench and talk to a friend who was actually a trained counselor and speak about these issues and she said they were dealing with in Zimbabwe what they called kuganesia. Kuganesia means thinking too much which is what in America the same word we have for depression. And after people who participated sitting on friendship benches and having those discussions for six months only 13% of them still showed symptoms of depression. See, friends, we, we need this. We, we need this. And only if we understand the importance of deep and impactful and meaningful friendship, what it really means in the, in the concept spiritually, will we ever understand the power of what Jesus was saying when he looked at his 12 closest associates. We call them the 12 disciples. There were more than 12, but they were men. They got the headline news back then. And, and what he did, he looked at them and said, look, no longer do I call you disciples. No longer do I call you followers. No longer do I call you students. Now I call you friends. And when Peter and Paul and the New Testament writers would write to communities, they would say what I said in this passage. They would write them and say, dear friends. See, and for us, it's kind of a sentimental thing. It's a sappy thing, but not for them. And you know, I've taught on this for years and years and years. Um, If you study the stories of creation, not simply how God created, but why God created, how we were created to be in relationship with God and in relationship with one another. When we read the stories of creation, first and second Genesis, and up until chapter three, where sin comes into the world and starts to divide us and ravage us. In those first two chapters, if you remember, God kept saying, this is good, and that is good, and this is good, and that is very good. But there was one thing in creation that was not good. You know what the answer to this is. What was it not good? It's not good to be alone. And I've always said that, but here's what I realized. See, I had never thought about this way, but all, everything, there was only at this time, and Adam, the created one, the person, 
that, that he was still perfect. Sin had not come into the world, right? Everything was perfect, and even in a state of perfection, there's only one ache that Adam had in his heart. All the other aches of his heart and Eve's heart and all of our hearts were created by sin, but one ache in our hearts, even in creation, is we're not wired to be alone. In fact, God you know, shows us that God lives in some eternal community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't get out works. But so when you're feeling an ache in your heart for this, you're close to God. We weren't created for this, friends. It's the importance of friendship, right? This is how we build up community. This is how we, we right old wrongs. This is how we tear down the gates of hell what Jesus said in Matthew 16. So two aspects of friendship that I want to talk about quickly in the time I have left that I see in this, in this teaching. What are the disciplines of friendship? What are the disciplines? The first is what I call the constancy of friendship. A friend is one who is always there for you. What has Paul said? To be friends... Bear one another's burdens. Carry one another's burdens. How do you do that? Think practically. If somebody's walking down the street and they have a hundred pound weight on their back, how do you help them bear that burden? You get close to them, right? You come up real, real near to them. You put your shoulders under that burden with them and help them carry the weight. And what is happening? Some of their burden is sliding on to you. And in friendship, we're, we're carrying that burden with one another. Now, when I told that story, I thought back immediately what came to my mind in an illustrative way was I, I, had, I, two, I still have two best friends. One is in heaven, one's in Austin, Texas, okay? And they were my best buddies from way back in high school. We played ball together in high school. We played ball against each other in college. And then one of our friends went on to an 18-year career in the NBA and became one of the greatest all-pro power forwards in the history of the game. But I'm not bitter. Um, you're Paul say, you're Paul say, don't be conceited or envy. Whoops. <laughs> but we, one of the things we love to do is we would fish all over the world. We just did. It was our way. We'd golf together, get together for weekends. We'd fish together. We nurtured that friendship. And I don't forget, we were up in northern Saskatchewan fishing, and we wanted to do a portage lake. Like we were doing where they drop you off in a lake and, you know, see you in a week. My wife still lets me do it, but now I have to take sat phones because I'm old. Um, but we would do that, and we'd go all over. And a portage lake is there's a lake nearby that they leave boats on, but if you want to really be rugged, you can get to it, but you may have to walk through really rugged terrain for four or five miles, carry all your gear, and then go into those boats. But we were younger at the time. We still thought we could leap tall buildings. Otis was still playing the NBA. And um, we said, let's get to this portage lake. We could do it. And we pulled up. And I'll never forget, Kevin said, my one friend Kevin, he's like 6'4". I'm the runt of the litter. Um, and he picked up the two gas cans and some pitful holes. He said, I'll take these. You guys handle the engine. Now, the engine was 600 pounds. Okay. And Otis and I decide we need to carry this together, right? Now, he was voted one of the two strongest people in the NBA. I should have made him carry it, but I was trying to be a good friend. And so what we decided was, let's take this 6-pound engine, let's use the bungee cords, we'll strap it over an oar, and we'll carry it over each other's shoulders. That's 
bearing one another's burdens, right? Did I mention to you he's 6'10"? <laughs> Not this. So I still contend to this day when we talk, I had 550 pounds of that sucker on my back and you'd only slid a little bit of burden. But you know, you get my point. That really to be friends, you gotta get close. You gotta get up near people when they're, when they're hurting. See, we don't like to do this because it's, it's, it's emotionally expensive, right? If you're around people and they're weeping all the time and they've got all these problems and you go hang out with them, it's kind of draining, right? Be honest. It's draining. But guess what? That's what bearing one another's burdens are. And you're getting close to them and some of their burden is, is slipping onto you, right? And, and it, it's hard work, right? It, it, it's what happens. But yet when we're with people in pain like that, just our very presence as they are able to transfer some of their suffering onto us, they feel a little bit of hope and a little bit of relief. And see, when we say, I would like to help, but I just can't, often what we're really saying, let's be honest, I'd like to help, but I don't want to take on that kind of burden. And, and Jonathan Edwards was a great reformer, and he wrote something one time that really challenged me, and it still does. Here's what he wrote. He said, the gospel obliges us to give to others even if we cannot do it without suffering ourselves. How else will we bear one another's burdens? He's speaking about this passage. If we are never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but when we can do it without burdening ourselves, how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burdens at all? See, this is the problem with Western individualism and I know individual rights and all these things. I get it. There's inalienable rights and civil rights. I, I totally understand individual freedom. But we have gotten so full of ourselves that we're simply not willing to bear bur ourselves, to bear burdens ourselves, to take on some of that on behalf of our neighbors. How do we bear our neighbors' burdens? How do we love our neighbors when we simply want to bear nobody's burdens but our own? I hope that challenges you. It sure does me. And that's the constancy of that work. That's getting close in that work, right? There's a Proverbs 18.24 that says this, some friends play at friendship, but a true friend sticks closer than one's nearest kin. And what Proverbs is saying is, you know, you can be a brother, a sister, a spouse, and really not be a friend, and really not want to do this. So I, you know, I'm a sports nut. You guys know that, the Bible and ESPN. And this past year's NBA championship, I really was pulling for one team. I was pulling for the Milwaukee Bucks, not because they're a small market team and I'm bitter because I'm from Cleveland. Really not. Um, not because Dre is from Milwaukee, um, our worship leader. But I was pulling for them because of one person, Drew Holiday. Drew Holiday was their point guard. He's an incredible player, if you saw the series. He actually flew over after the series to rescue the U.S. Olympic team. Amazing athlete. But Drew Holiday's even a better person. 
Drew Holiday and his wife Lauren met at UCLA when he was a basketball player and she was a soccer player and she's now a professional soccer player. And it was Drew's, I forget what year in the league, he was with the, the uh, um, New Orleans Jazz at the time. I think they weren't the Jazz anymore. I'm losing my NBA points. Um, but he was with them and he had just made his first All-Star t- game. That's a big deal for a professional athlete, right? And the lifespan of, of professional athletes is like three to five years. Okay, so my buddy that plays 18 years, he's, he's an anomaly. So here's Drew made his first All-Star game. In the offseason, his wife Lauren, they found out she was pregnant. And in the course of all the testing, they found out Lauren had a brain tumor. And so the team, the NBA team at the time said, look, we know this is going to be a trying pregnancy. We know this is going to be rough on you. We'll provide all the support you need when you're on the road. We'll have, you know, people assigned to Lauren. They'll take her to the doctor's appointments. If anything happens, if you ain't bad news, we'll put a private plane and fly you back. And Drew said, you won't have to do any of that. I'm stepping away from basketball to take care of my wife. And he and Lauren got up under that weight together. And they carried it. And thank God, it was a wonderful story. Um, totally healed. Their daughter is totally well. Um, and Drew worked his, back, his way back into NBA all-stardom. But I got to thinking that, I, that Drew and Lauren weren't just spouses. They were really, really, really good friends. It takes getting close to each other and bearing each other's burden. Let me, let, me, let me hurry on to the second one, the intimacy of friendship. Friendship means we get vulnerable with each other. Paul uses a case study. It's really complicated. You've got to be careful with this one. He says, if you see a friend, if you see someone caught, the lure word is trapped in a sin, you're, you're supposed to go and do uh, work with them. You're, you're supposed to restore gently. And see, Christians have misinterpreted this verse through the years to say, see, whenever you see somebody sin, you're supposed to call it out. The Bible never says that, ever. In fact, 1 Peter 4a says love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says love is not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongdoing. People aren't understanding. This isn't a call out for us to name people's sins. This is a call out to see when we see a friend, when we see someone that we have some kind of relationship and they are trapped in a sin. You know what that means? There's a pattern here where they're hurting themselves or hurting others and they're stuck and they can't get out of it by themselves. Then we're to start doing the spiritual friendship of restoring gently. And the word restore in the Greek, is kind of grosses me out because I saw this happen. Um, you ever seen restore? Okay, in the Greek, I'm going to try to get through this without squinting. Um, restore in the Greek means to take a bone that's dislocated and push it back into location. You ever seen that happen? I had teammates that dislocated shoulders and dislocated fingers, and a trainer would pop it back in a locker room. It's still, oh, look, it's too. It's like, ugh. Anyhow, but, you know, you see this person screaming in pain, and then the trainer would push it back in. They're really screaming in pain. And then afterwards, there's a big relief from pain. And that's what Paul says. We need to help go in and restore. There's a healing kind of pain, and we might deliver that. We speak the truth and love her, but do it gently. And he said, so that you won't be tempted. What does he mean? Don't you dare go near that person with the attitude of, oh, I could never do something like that. 
Because if you don't go gently and you don't go humbly and you go so full of yourself, you're, you're not qualified for this work. Don't do it. You'll be too haughty. You'll be too arrogant. You won't put that person's needs above your own. And I know it's scary work. We don't really want to do this work. You know why? Because we don't want anybody to know us that well. That's part of our sinfulness, right? We want to put up our walls because I don't want to get the criticism. And maybe that person won't receive it. And that's painful. And the worst part is, you know, if you go do that work with somebody else, then you have given them full license to do that work with you. And that's why we're afraid, because our own selfishness and our own sin. And that's why Paul said the only way to get through that, it's that kind of complicated verse. I'm going to jump down to it, guys. It's that um, Galatians 6, 3, and 4. That it's, it's this perspective of friendship. If anyone thinks there's something when they are not... They deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then, as you're in this work, then you can take pride without comparing yourself to someone else. It's this weird thing that Paul said, you better be humbled in the dirt, but yet in serving others, you can find pride. What's happening? If you understand that you're a sinner, if you understand that you really are not all that, then you you can go do this work gently. No, and you're broken too. That's why I say in our mission statement, common brokenness. But do it also then for understanding that the, the, the pride you're feeling is in being loved by God who has lifted you up, who's the only affirmation you really need, and I don't need to compare myself with others so I can do it humbly and boldly at the same time. The world needs this work. So what's the power for this work? What's the power for friendship? You know, the the power for friendship, you find it in this next verse where Paul says what? Bear one another's burdens, and in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. See, Paul didn't say, bear one another's burdens because I'm Paul and I say so. Right? He said, no, bear one another's burdens because in Christ, God bore your burdens. (laughs) Not some of them, not just 500 pounds of the engine on my back. But Isaiah said, all of the sin of the world, all of our brokenness fell on Jesus. He didn't just get close to our shoes. He got in our shoes. It's called substitutionary sacrifice. Nobody has ever gotten closer to you than this. To take everything and to be so intimate with us, to be so vulnerable. How more vulnerable can you get than to be nailed naked on a cross? And to say, I will be your constant friend, that lo, you remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will be with you to the very end. A friend of someone, when the world walks out, they walk in, and only Jesus does this perfectly. And, and I will be intimate. I, I want to call you not simply my student, but call you my friend. And at the end of his life, Jesus said this, no one has greater love than this. This is John 15, 12 through 14. No one has greater love than this to ta- lay down one's life, what? For one's friends. You are my friends, he says, if you do what I command you. And this is my commandment, that you love one another as I love you. And there it is. That's the work of reconciliation in the world. You know, when the old church used to sing, what a friend we have in Jesus, it wasn't a little campfire song. They were singing about this powerful friendship 
that Jesus gives us with God that enables us to be friends with one another. Well, I'm at the end of my time, but I can't leave you here because you know I'm ornery. So I'm going to close with a horror story. Okay? Nobody even laughed. Even Heritage laughed at that. Um, I'm going with the horror story. And uh, all millennials and that, you're going to glaze over because it's one of the very first horror stories. Anybody, at least if you're my age or older, you'll remember the name Boris Karloff? Okay. Oh, I know some of you are going, Boris who? You're allowed to go to your phones right now. Every now and then, go to your phones, Boris Karloff. I think it was back in the first one of the first black and whites. We saw the reruns later. It was when he played Frankenstein, right? So millennials, Boris Karloff, K-A-R-L-O-F-F, Frankenstein. Go to your phones right now. Phone a, phone a friend. There you go. Text a friend. Um, but what happened in this movie, Frankenstein, uh, Boris Karloff is this monster. You know the story. But they had a sequel to it. But you see, even sequels back then weren't very good. Do you remember what the sequel to Frankenstein was? Huh? Bride of Frankenstein. There you go. Um, all these horror movie people in here. See, I, if I hang in there, I'll catch you in sin. Um, so I got to do some. I got to do some restoration gently. And you're saying, "Come on, Chip, you're telling the story." I get it. But Bride of Frankenstein was a sequel, and there's this incredible mo- part in this movie I'll never forget, where Frankenstein, a monster, you know, he, he stumbles up to this cottage in the forest, right? And in the forest, this cottage, he beats on the door, and a man opens, and his man is blind. And, and Frankenstein's, you know, and, and this blind man, uh, he says that um, to, to the monster, he basically says, oh, um, are you afflicted as I am? You, my friend, cannot speak and I cannot see, but maybe we could help one another. Maybe we could be friends. And so what happens, a man drops down on his knees and he says, I thank you, O Lord, that you have finally sent me a friend in my loneliness. And for the next three or four days, this blind man and the monster, they they begin to do chores together. They sit at the table together. And Frankenstein begins to speak for the first time. He says words like food and, and, and friend. And the only time in the, in the entire course of the movie, in fact, Boris Karloff said later, he actually caught himself doing it. He didn't want to do it because it was out of character. But it's the only time in both of those movies that the Frankenstein monster smiled. And that's why friendship is one of the most humanizing things in the world. We're all aching for it. But it's a horror movie. So here come these hunters to the door, and they go to the door, and they knock, and they see the monster. So they attack. The cottage burns down. The blind man dies. The hunters die. And Frankenstein is groping in the wilderness. Watch this. Saying, friend, friend, friend. All of us, friends, have groped in the darkness. All of us have a little monster in us. Therefore, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought to. But we're groping, crying out for friend. And God and Jesus Christ answers, here I am. The greatest friend you will ever have. Come to relieve your burdens. So come to me, shift your burdens onto me, and I will care for you and be your friend. I know sometimes we cheapen that. Well, that's too cheap. Let me, I hope this message has helped you. Jesus is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our King, the King of kings and Lord of lords. But in the true sense of the word, 
Jesus Christ shows us what it means to be the ultimate friend. And if we can go emulate that, you'll be amazed what walls of hatred and division might fall down as we live this out to, to make opposers, not just non-opposers, but to build spiritual friendship. Let's try to do that. Amen? Okay, I'm going to leave you with kind of an altar call. Um, we, Terry talked about the small groups. We really, we've been thinking this fall and winter, um, we, we want people to be able to get back together, whether it's online, whether in groups, where we can nurture friendship. So we have a whole calendar. You'll see them. If you go to our small groups on the website, just click it. There's a whole calendar of stuff through October through December men's groups, mom's groups, uh, women's groups, uh, 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 temperament groups, all kind of different groups that are going to start meeting. I haven't led a group in a really long time, but I was really moved. I'm going to lead a group on this book. It's called Reunion. It's by Bruxy Cavey. This is, to me, the best book that I have read since Mere Christianity. It's really easy reading on kind of Christianity 101 what it means to follow our Christ. So if you figured out how to be the perfect Christian and you never mess up, uh, this study's not for you. But if like me, you're sometimes groping in the dark, crying out and figuring things out, I'm going to invite you to jump into this. I think we're going to start October 5th. It's going to be on Wednesday evenings. We're going to run through mid-December. Um, and I want, I'm telling you this early because I want you to get this book early. The chapters are real short, but I want you to read the first four before we get together. That's about four weeks from now. Um, it's only 63 pages. And we're going to really dig in. What, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? If you want to do that with me, that's on that small groups page. The other one I'm really excited about, I mean, all I'm excited about. You should look at any of them that might fit you. You know, go a step further. Seek to not just be, you know, attend the church, but be in the church and build some of these spiritual friendships. Uh, we have a group specifically with our young parents and minds, but they're for all parents, grandparents, coaches, teachers, etc. Our temperament study we did, if you weren't with us, if you're with us online, uh, we've done that. We've had hundreds of folks go through it. I said this, you heard that. Kathleen Edelman flew in from Atlanta to lead that about a year before the pandemic. I think right after she left, we had well over 400 folks spend five weeks in the temperaments. They loved it. Um, and Kathleen came out with a new book. It's called An Adult's Guide to Kids Wiring. So I read this thing, and I'm in a small group right now with some uh, people who may help lead our groups, and I'm going, I wish I had this, but my kids are still my kids. I don't care how old they are. So it's been really helpful to me, but I know young parents have been through so much stress in these years, and we're trying to create something fun and something very meaningful for you. So if that would be helpful, jump in. Go to garfieldchurch.org, click small groups, take a look and jump in and nurture an intimacy with some new friends, dear friends, best friends, friends in Christ. I hope you'll do it. Um, so we're going to send this out. Uh, Flora Mark's going to lead us in prayer.